Hello, everyone. In this episode, we will be talking about automation, the UK election, and Disney+. Plus. My name is Tanner Judkins. My name's Kaylee Flannery. Hi, I'm Abraham. You, you might remember me. First on the list is the 30% unemployment that is predicted to be taking place in my generation, Generation Z, in the next 30 years, I believe. This 30% unemployment, it'll actually be higher than what it was in the Great Depression, and it'll be all caused due to automation. Now, automation in the workforce is kind of a touchy subject. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I live in the northeast of England for most of the year because I go to university there. And in the northeast of England, I think it's around half of the current jobs are at risk of being replaced by automation, which is obviously is hugely problematic for an area which already in relation to the rest of the UK is where the economy is, you know, slightly slower perhaps than the Northeast. So yeah, it is, it is a slight bit of an issue for a lot of people, obviously, you know, people need to work in order to have social power to a certain extent. If, um, if working class people don't have a certain amount of use to those, you know, at the, at the top of society, it would be very difficult for them to be able to adequately fight for their rights with strike action or unionization or whatever it is. So obviously having jobs, having, you know, use to those in charge is extremely necessary for those in the working class. And I think automation does, to a certain extent, threaten that if it's not done for, you know, public gain, but rather private gain. Um, so I go to A&M, right? And one of the big thing A&M's promotes is that their bus system is student run. So students are the ones who drive the buses, right? Well, recently, they this past semester, they were testing an automated bus that like didn't have any driver. So that was driving around with all like the other cars. And it don't get me wrong, it was working fine. It was pretty fun to look at. But how's that going to work for their bus system if they start pushing that instead of the student run bus? that they promote on all the buses. Yeah, and I believe we've already talked in a previous podcast about the effects of automated driving, self, self-driving cars and, you know, vehicles and all that, which cause complications in their own right. It's quite interesting. Indeed. In fact, most trucking jobs are in threat of being completely overtaken by automation. Isn't, isn't truck driving like the most common profession for a high school graduate in America? I don't know. There's a huge proportion of people that it will affect. There's a lot of jobs based off of trucking. And so if all those jobs go, they're going to be out of work. Another thing is, is that AI is thought to be wiping out a lot of white collar jobs. Now, blue collar jobs like trade jobs, electrical engineering, all those types of jobs are going to be fine because I mean, technology won't really get to that point of being able to change out the air conditioning just yet. Like there was a, a test done between uh, uh, South Korea's top lawyers and an AI and the AI completely trounced the lawyers. It took the AI no time and it was much more accurate than what the lawyers ended up producing. You see, this is a thing is that when we're dealing with the society that we are in today, we, you know, are obviously facing some pretty large problems, whether it be with the climate or with whatever else is thrown our way. And we have an increasing population that we have to, you know, keep up with and supply for. In some ways, we do need to a certain extent this better production, better distribution, better better services that can be provided with automation. So it's in some ways, automation will probably become a necessity for life on earth, you know, further down the line. The thing is, is that 
if this automation is in private hands and for private profit, then this is going to throw a, this is going to cause a massive problem for the working population. And so I think that perhaps the argument on automation should not necessarily comprise just about stopping it or, you know, preventing automation from completely taking over, but rather how this automation is performed and who's fundamentally in control of it and for what purposes we are automizing various services or industries. I agree, but I'll take it from a different perspective. I think the market should be able to take its course and not have government regulation come in and just forcibly stop the automation from, although it will be bad for take jobs, but it, it will lead to more production as well. And it'll probably become a necessity, as you were saying. Thing is, is that Silicon Valley, their goal is to is not to just get to 30% unemployment. Their goal is to get to 100% unemployment. So no one has to work. Thing is, is that if that's the case, people people find meaning in their work and, and they say, oh, well, if no one has to work, we can just focus on hobbies and just do things that we like to do. But that's not really true. Not everyone has a hobby. So people will tend to start to atrophy, especially if they're not actually getting out and working and, and doing things that they find meaning in. And so there's a possibility that, especially with the neural network that Elon Musk is coming out with is that they'll probably go into their own virtual reality and focus on that, kind of like what was that one movie, uh, Ready Player One. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. And I guess it, it depends on your view on how to best, you know, operate a society efficient, uh, efficiently to a certain degree. But I think it's also worth remembering when we're dealing with, you know, who, who would control or who would be, you know, in ownership of this sort of automated industry, that increased, the increase of corporate power is hardly, you know, good for the majority, as we've seen where, where this sort of corporate power is accelerated to a certain degree, uh, we run the risk of creating an extremely uh, stratified society in which, you know, any notion of quote-unquote social mobility, which, you know, is arguable that it exists in its current form anyway, becomes even e even more sort of ridiculous. And I, I, I actually wrote an article about this relatively recently in which I compared certain aspects to uh, technological accelerationism whilst it's, you know, owned in private ownership ownership to what's being proposed by certain dark enlightenment thinkers i don't know if you if you know much about that and the issues that can be um, that ultimately can be arisen when power is concentrated specifically in the hands of an elite few and what that sort of will for efficiency in its purest form uh, can do to the people within it I'll give you that, you know, back in the 70s where they had these futuristic movies where it was a big corporation that was a big, big bad guy. It was kind of like a tyrannical government. Well, <laughs> now that's looking more and more like a, a possibility. So absolutely. Yeah, I'll give you that, especially I, I think we talked about this in the last episode, but when big tech and as I put it, big government, you know, come together and start working with each other. That'll be a... They certainly do if it's a, you know, a society of or a government that's based on corporate appeasement. I guess that's the difference between state capitalism and socialism in a certain way, in that state capitalist societies are are more sort of appeasing towards the, the corporate power within a country, whereas the socialists often like to squash it and take that power and, you know, 
nationalize it, socialize it, etc. I think I think economic system has a lot to do with the question of automation. And obviously, there is obviously still a debate about what that economic system should be. But it's an essential part of the debate on automation in general, I think. Speaking of economics, one of the proposed solutions to automation and the coming crisis is UBI or universal basic income. According to Yang, at least. <laughs> Mentioning Yang, his policy is called the Freedom Dividend, which will essentially give everybody over eighteen a thousand dollars a month to help support their living standards. And while I disagree with this policy, I think it comes from a, a kind of a, a place not like most other Democrats. His argument is that would you prefer you to manage your money or the government to manage your money? Which I appreciate. However, I still disagree with the policy. But a lot of people are saying this might be. One of the solutions to this problem. Now, I again really dislike government giving out money to the people. That's just a really bad idea in general. However, this is something that we need to be talking about now instead of later, so we can really get ideas going before the problem really hits us. I guess for me, universal basic income feels so much like a. A last-ditch attempt to save the capitalist system is effectively a bailout of the capitalist system and the consequences of, you know, late capitalism amongst the working people. And it's to me, it seems like an attempt to sort of salvage the the economic model that we are currently in without it, you know, devolving into some kind of corporate fascist, you know, dystopia of any sort. Now. I guess capitalists are largely in favor of that. I, as someone who believes that the consequences of late capitalism are very much related to the 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 way that capitalism fundamentally operates in the first place, would not necessarily advocate trying to bail the system out, and instead seek something else. But I, I guess in the short term, though, there is a certain worth to universal basic income, and in that you know. People do need to survive whatever system we're in, and if universal basic income is the way that we can make sure that that happens, then I guess as a short-term thing, it might have to be a necessity. But I don't know. I'm a bit torn on the issue, actually. Just kind of as an aside, I think the current economic model we're in is not really capitalism, but more of a mixed economy. I mean, we haven't really been operating in a free market for quite a while, but anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not it's not the purest form of capitalism. I I will definitely give you that. But fundamentally,、uh, the means of production and distribution, and many public services as well, rather not public services, are owned as capital, whether that be by private. Corporations or by small businesses or by whatever it is, so I don't know. I I would label it a capitalist society, but obviously it's not quite free marketeer territory yet. I personally believe that jobs will evolve. So yes, the jobs that are currently exist will be taken away, but more jobs will come that robots can't do currently. Oh, absolutely. I I, I mean I totally agree with that, but I think that. When this sort of process is happening, we as human beings are going to have to slightly reevaluate our metaphysical, you know, role as as humanity in regards to the rest of the world. Because obviously, manual material labor is no no longer going to be a cornerstone of you know human responsibility. I like to think that one way that we could sort of reinvent. The sort of human definition almost would be in a more sort of intellectual, you know, from a more intellectual angle, 
and you know championing abstract thought and all of that kind of stuff i i'm i'm sure that there are different approaches to that amongst the populace probably amongst this podcast for all i know well even so i think ai may beat us there too ai is also able to compose symphonies and do paintings and all that yeah i i, I guess so but i mean when we're talking about sort of human philosophy as such i can understand in regards to things that are based upon you know explicit logic and you know specifically and directly related to logic which obviously something like lawyering has is somewhat connected to but also in regards to you know uh, musical compositions and, and and so forth a traditional symphony is actually somewhat formulaic in the you know a a sort of a traditional classical uh, symphony based upon a set of rules and there's very much a uh, there's very much an emphasis on musical techniques that are you know continued and and utilized as opposed to say for example modern classical slash minimalist music where people just throw in all kinds of weird and wonderful stuff that nobody could predict i don't think that that kind of stuff is being written by ai quite quite yet so i think when we're dealing with questions that are more sort of formulaic more based in direct logic more based in certain rules and regulations yeah that that definitely can be done by ai but when we get into the even more abstract sort of human human creations or questions we can uh, i don't think that ai will be able to replace that for a long time indeed so long as agi isn't coming around the corner in the next 30 years <laughs> oh i don't know <laughs> we'll have to wait and see This topic is over, now, this might get me in a lot of trouble, but it's over Ukraine and Burisma. Yes, Ukraine. As we all know, one of my favorite places. Absolutely not. <laughs> so there's been a lot of, let's say, debate over whether or not there's been a huge scandal in Ukraine. Now, just going off of the evidence, it seems that there is. Lately, the Latvian government, one of the Baltic countries, uh, came to Ukraine and stated, hey, we've found some kind of shady stuff going on here. Uh, apparently, there is a huge money laundering thing going on, and it seems to be pointing towards Burisma. And we also found a large donation given to Hunter Biden, the one of the people sitting on the board of Burisma. Yep. <laughs> seems there's some shady stuff going on there. The thing is, is that, you know, Hunter Biden, he's never really been in the oil and gas field before, which is what Burisma is. Doesn't really know Ukrainian. And uh, yeah. And the thing is, in the Obama administration, uh, Joe Biden is actually the person overseeing Ukrainian funds to gas and oil companies. So there might be a little bit of conflict of interest. 
I think in terms of Ukraine, uh, well, shady stuff has been happening there ever since the, uh, what I will call a coup in 2014. And ever since then, Ukraine has had some pretty dodgy deals happen within it, especially under Poroshenko. Obviously, Poroshenko's gone now. Woo! But, you know, um, even still, it's it, it, there's, there's still a lot of sketchy things going on there. And... Uh, the thing I find about the Trump impeachment specifically, because I know obviously Trump is the most recent person to be uncovered as, you know, meddling around in Ukrainian stuff, is that, in my opinion, there's so many good reasons to impeach Trump, in, in my personal opinion. Yet they choose the idea that he might stop funding and supporting and arming these Ukrainian for lack of a better term, sort of quasi-fascist militias. You know, the idea that he might cut off aid to them is what's getting him impeached, which I, I feel is just the exact wrong reason to impeach Trump, personally. But, you know, it's, it's a bit of a shame. We are where we are, though. So Shokin, Viktor Shokin, was the former general prosecutor of Ukraine, and he started looking into Burisma. And Joe Biden did really like that. And so he had the general prosecutor of Ukraine fired. And he even said so in a, in a speech he was doing. That, that part is often debated between Democrats and Republicans. But anyway, apparently, recently, it was found that Viktor Shokin was recently poisoned with mercury. Apparently, the normal level is at 3% or something. Well, he was at 9, and he was nearly gone. However, he survived. Yeah, some again, shady stuff is going on. I, I'm not insinuating that Joe Biden or any of the people around him had him poisoned. I'm not saying that at all. But Ukraine is a very dangerous place. Well, I would not be surprised because obviously historically and up until this very day, both Democrats and Republicans have been deeply, you know, involved in foreign affairs to a level where they really should not be, uh, whether that be with the CIA or whether that be in terms of foreign intervention. Um, and Obama was, you know, no stranger to that as well. Let, let's just make this clear. I think Obama engaged perhaps in more intervention to a certain extent than 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 most of his predecessors. So he, he's definitely not immune from that. Both Democrats and Republicans alike, both have had their hands in, you know, some very shady practices, whether that be assassinations or whether it be coups or whether it be whatever it is in the past. So it wouldn't really surprise me if there were, you know, some kind of conspiracy that ended up being true. Yeah, I mean, I, I think for this impeachment that's going on is... <laughs> The Democrats are, are trying to get him impeached for interfering. They claim he's interfering in the 2020 election with Trump asking uh, the current um, leader of Ukraine to look into Joe Biden. Thing is, is that uh, they actually did the same thing in Ukraine just in 2016. The Obama administration actually set up a anti-corruption bureau in Ukraine, and the head of the anti-corruption bureau actually was recorded saying, oh yeah, we try to help Hillary get elected in, uh, in the 2016 election. He actually said that, and then uh, him and a few other people were actually convicted. Now, their convictions were overturned, but play overturned over a technicality because you're not supposed to prosecute a sitting member of parliament in Ukraine. 
there is a lot of evidence to say that Ukraine have interfered in a lot of in a lot of you know elections um, in in 2016 actually there is a certain amount of evidence that Ukraine's leaders actually were were responsible for a degree of interference because they believed Trump to be you know too pro-Putin and so you know they've tried to help Hillary Clinton in that instance and it doesn't surprise me to be honest. <laughs> I will say that the Ukrainian interferement is way below the Russian interferement. The Russians had way more going on in uh, the election than, than Ukrainians. The, the Russian interference is a different subject entirely, and that's obviously a little more um, somewhat debated amongst, yeah, on both the left and the right in regard to Russian interference. Is it quite to the level that, you know, is being espoused by the corporate media? Well, I, 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 I find that very, very difficult to believe. It's an interesting, it's an interesting subject, but it's not really the one we're discussing right now. <laughs> I mean, is anything to the level the news says it is? Well, I mean, it should be, I guess, you know, this is what happens when we have, you know, private media go going AWOL. But, you know, it's uh, the goal of the media should be to, you know, fairly represent current events and, and issues surrounding them. Obviously, that doesn't happen when it's all for profit. Yeah, and when bias overtakes the, the rules of journalism. Okay, so finally for my topic is competitor to Putin, Alexei Navalny. So he is currently, his YouTube channel has over 3 million subscriptions. He's, I think he's a pretty big deal in Russia. He seems to, well, first of all, he's still alive and he's a competitor to Putin. That's a big deal. But he seems to be a little bit less extreme as Putin. I, I mean, if he were to beat out Putin and were to take office, I think that would be a good step in the right direction. I mean, you say he's a he's a notable figure. I think he is um, to a certain extent, but obviously, I think he's been imprisoned at some point. Oh yeah. I I don't know whether he's in prison now or whether he has gotten out now, but obviously, he's not necessarily allowed to have quite the political platform that you would be able to get as an opposition leader here, because obviously, Putin is a good deal more autocratic on domestic issues and. Probably Navalny would relatively substantial figure if he was allowed to, you know, uh, actually serve as an opposition force. I've heard he's been in and out of prison a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a critic of Putin and still alive. I mean, I don't know what that says exactly. Well, I mean, Putin doesn't kill all his critics. I mean, self-evidently, there are there are plenty of Putin critics in Russia um, who who actually do have political careers and are able to, you know, have a political persona as such. So I don't find it surprising that he's still alive. But, you know, it's interesting because I think Navalny's pro um, sort of his policy uh, largely is sort of anti-corruption kind of stuff. So anti-authoritarianism to a certain degree as well. Social liberalism, all of that kind of all of that kind of uh, deal. But I think that when you look at his foreign policy as such, I don't think it differs that much to sort of conventional foreign policy in Russia anyway. It sort of almost suggests that things like the intervention in Georgia, or to a certain extent, maybe even uh, intervention in, in Donbass, the opinions in Russia are not actually that diverse. And in a similar way to in America, you don't have that much debate about foreign policy either because 
obviously, as we've already mentioned, both the Democratic, both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party engage in, you know, foreign intervention and don't think that it's an inherently bad thing. Well, I'd say that the foreign policy of Russia has been the same for at least 300 years. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's not surprising why. And I think that if you are continuously sort of put against the West or you, you believe the West to be, you know, a force of uh, a problematic force across the world, if you believe that global capitalism or neoliberalism or any of that which the West is perpetuating is a bad thing, then it would look like the West is being extremely aggressive in the amount of, you know, intervention that it, you know, partakes in across the world. So I could completely understand, and that's why I completely understand and sympathize with a lot of aspects of Russian foreign policy, whether that be aiding Maduro or, you know, getting involved to a certain extent or not not necessarily getting involved, but supporting the uh, Syrian government and the Donbass rebels and all that kind of stuff. Well, looking at it from an economic perspective, Russia has very few warm water ports and they need that to keep trade alive. And, you know, one of the major warm water ports is in Crimea, which they recently took from Ukraine. Well, in the, in the Crimean situation, I think it's very badly reported within the West because I think there is a good lot of evidence to show that the Crimean referendum to joining Russia or being annexed by Russia uh, was in fact somewhat legitimate and that the concerns of the Crimean people were real uh, following the 2014 coup in Ukraine, which obviously gave a lot of power to these ethno-nationalist paramilitaries. Obviously, Crimea is ethnically Tatar mostly. So having a load of you know ethno-nationalists who you've never voted for, Crimea has never voted for the anyone other than the Communist Party or the Party of Regions, which were the two parties banned after the coup in Ukraine. For if a people in U in Crimea looking at Kiev and seeing people who they've never elected to represent them, and then seeing these ethno nationalists, you know, rising in prominence and being an ethnic minority themselves. I can kind of understand why they'd be a little worried. Now, a lot of people say that, okay, that all, you know, all that said and done, uh, Russia still shouldn't have broken international law. But the thing is, is the West have already done that. Uh, the West have done that on countless occasions. One to name off the top of my head is uh, in 2008, uh, the uh, recognition of uh, Kosovo and Natohia in southern Serbia, which is which whose independence actually violates the uh, UNSCR 1244, I believe. I'm, I'm not entirely sure of exa which exact resolution it was, but if we're talking about breaking international law, then I think that needs to be remembered as well. On the Kosovo issue, I'm kind of split because I probably shouldn't go here, but I'm, I'm split on the Kosovo issue myself. That's, that's fair. <laughs> We can talk a bit about Britain, which is where I live. Woohoo! 
even though I never talk about Britain usually. But yeah, it's it's relatively depressing from my standard standpoint. As as you may have heard, we had a general election in December on the 12th, I believe, and Boris Johnson, who's the prime minister, gained a massive majority, the largest that they've had for ages. And as a result, the Labour Party, which is a broadly social democratic party, is going to be looking at a change in leadership. And the Liberal Democratic Party, well, their leader lost their seat. So uh, yes, a big win for Boris Johnson and the Conservatives, but also for the Scottish National Party, who won most seats in Scotland and are now demanding another re independence referendum as a result of that. Some interesting developments going on there. Poor Joe Swinson. I mean, I don't really feel sorry for her, to be fair. I don't feel sorry for her because she split the sort of the anti-conservative vote. Um, she went on these, you know, she had this massive campaign of calling herself the next prime minister, which was utterly ludicrous right from the start, but, you know, obviously didn't turn out well. I think there was a certain arrogance to, to the Lib Dem campaign. And I think that it didn't do the sort of the anti-conservative cause much good. And also the Lib Dems were instrumental in having the election arranged in the first place as well. So let's not forget that. I can't really feel that sorry for Joe Swinson. <laughs> so since I follow British politics even more so than I do American politics, <laughs> I'll put my two cents in. First of all, even though this was a big win for Brexit and the Conservatives, I think, you know, even more so than the Brexit party lost, I think the DUP lost, uh, the Northern Irish party, because it gave them, how the previous par parliament was set up, it gave them a lot of power over deciding the, the Brexit policy, so they wouldn't really be cut out of the deal. In terms of seats, the DUP only lost a couple. They lost them mostly to, I, I think they lost one of them to Alliance, which is a sort of a, a down the road party in Northern Ireland, more respectable. And I think they, I, they, they may have also lost one to the SDLP as well, or Sinn Féin or something. But yeah, they no longer have any sort of say over the government because the majority uh, no longer, you know, requires their consent. Yeah, they lost a lot of their influence. And with the Brexit party, while they didn't win any seats at all, I think they used their influence quite well to try to get the Conservative Party to go where they wanted to go. Now, they didn't get, you know, what Farage's vision of what Brexit should be. However, it's closer to that than what it was before. There's not that much difference in the end between um, Boris Johnson's deal and Theresa May's deal. It's it's not actually that dissimilar, but you know, either way, Farage is not going to get his no deal Brexit, and some might say that that's a good thing. I I probably would be more likely to say that that's probably a good thing that we don't have a no deal Brexit. But you know, I think that probably the Brexit party did help to split the vote to a certain degree in Labour safe seats or formerly safe seats, now no longer Labour seats, but yeah. 
Yeah, with this new parliament, like what shocked me is that just a few days after parliament sat again, they passed the, the Brexit deal, or Farage calls it the Brexit treaty because the UK is locked into the European Union. But anyway, that really shocked me because whenever the Republicans get a majority, or, or even the Democrats, they just sit around and do nothing for the most part. <laughs> Well, you guys have a very obstructive constitution. It's very difficult to make substantial change in the United States because you have legislative, executive, and judicial sectors all, you know, preventing each other from doing anything. In the UK, it's very different. If you have a majority, you can basically just do whatever the hell you want unless people in your party take stand up and say, absolutely not, we're not going to vote for that, which is unlikely. It's easier to make substantial change in Britain, and I think I prefer it that way, though obviously it does mean that substantial change can happen for the worse as well as for the better, as I fear in Johnson's government it might be used for not so nice stuff. It's interesting. How you put it obstructive, I think the constitution was, and the separation of, of powers was set up that way by design. Yeah. So that not one branch will have more power than the other. So like how, to go back to the impeachment, how Congress is saying, more specifically the House is saying, oh, the executive branch, Donald Trump, obstructed Congress. However, the president has what's called presidential privilege, which means they don't have to do what Congress says. And whenever those two branches get in a spat, it's up to the third branch, the judiciary, to, to solve that problem. You know, I think that in terms of the, uh, the current Trump stuff and Congress and the Constitution and all of that, I think that in some ways it shows to a certain extent essential, essential aspects to the Constitution are now relatively broken in America, in that in terms of impeachment proceedings, everyone's supposed to swear impartiality, and yet we've, we've seen what's happening with the Trump impeachment now. It's extremely partisan. So in that sense, there's, there's obviously a sense in which the US Constitution is not quite working in the way it should. Well, okay, even though we're supposed to be talking about uh, the UK right now, I have to defend the, the, the Constitution just because that's what I support. Yeah. So how you know Washington originally advocated for not having any political parties and just having people go and run for office on, on their own merits and on the policy's merit? Of course, that didn't really work. I mean, even Washington himself was a Federalist. Just going off of these two systems, the parliamentary system and the, and the congressional system, they have different ways of working. And so one way may function differently than the other. And people from one system may look at the other system. Like a lot of Americans look at the parliamentary system and they think, oh, wow, that system's terrible. Oh, yeah. So yeah. it may just be based off of perspective on what system you, you go off of. Yeah. But yes, since I can't actually remember the thing I was going to say, I'm just going to leave it at that. Wait, wait. Before we go back to UK, yeah. I have something I want to add. So one of the big deals was anything that the government, like the US government, did not handle, the states were supposed to get. So the states, it's easier to do things in, I think. So like laws, I think, are easier to like change in the state level. Yeah, that makes sense, actually. Yeah, um, I think I have heard about that. That's why that's why Texas has different laws than Oklahoma. Like now we can legally carry around swords, but we can't text and drive anymore. Interesting. <laughs> I'll keep that one in mind. <laughs> so 
how impeachment works in reality, not really how it's set up in the Constitution, but in reality, it works as, as a president, you could be impeached for whatever Congress deems impeachable. So you don't even have to commit a crime. If you just make Congress mad, then they have the ability to impeach you. That, that's what I was going to say. Oh, so anyway, back to Britain. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm already in Britain, but sure. Um, yeah. So uh, yes, so this election has prompted uh, a lot of discussions as to how the Labour Party is going to reform to a certain extent as well, because obviously Jeremy Corbyn had quite a, quite a left economic stance by Western terms. I mean, it was still social democratic. It was still within a capitalist system, in my opinion, though I think it was definitely more left wing than what we've seen in the past in Labour leadership uh, for the last 20 years and definitely much more left-wing than anyone in America. You know, Bernie Sanders or whatever is still pretty heftily to the right um, of what Corbyn was proposing. So the question amongst the Labour Party is, well, why did they lose? And a lot of the, you know, the the pro-Corbyn people, they sort of put particular emphasis on the Brexit policy issue and how that you know, may have alienated voters uh, in the north of England specifically, which were often went over to conservative. And but uh, there are also, you know, people from the Blairite factions uh, think that it was, you know, more specifically about economic policy, though it's a bit that's a bit dubious, given that most of Corbyn's policies, when polled independently, were viewed positively by people from the very you know, areas where they lost seats. Yeah, I find it interesting. Back when May was prime minister, you had a person leading the the government, the conservative government, who is supposed to be leading the UK out of the EU, being a person who, who voted to remain in the European Union, whereas Jeremy Corbyn has always really been a, a Eurosceptic, and he was leading the party that was supposed to be the opposition to that. I mean, well, in 2017, in that election, Corbyn campaigned on the promise that he was going to honour the public's vote to leave the European Union, though he was going to obviously seek a different deal from it. And I think that you can, well, I mean, I personally am a Eurosceptic. That doesn't necessarily mean I support Brexit. I mean, I think everyone should be sceptical of various aspects of the European Union, though, you know, what, we, what we're going to do about it is another issue entirely. And I can kind of understand why it seems like Corbyn has been flip-flopping on the issue um, a bit. But, you know, I think it's just, it's a bit more complicated than that, in my opinion. So uh, what do you think about the uh, the accusations that the Labour Party has been more and more anti-Semitic? Well, I think that I, I think that those claims are slightly um, are slightly dubious. I think that if you look at the Labour manifesto, if you look at any official document that the Labour Party has put out, if you look at Jeremy Corbyn's voting record in Commons and how he's insistently voted for the Jewish community in the UK and in their favour, if you look at Labour's pledge to increase police, you know, to in increase police protection of religious institutions, synagogues included, if you look at all of this kind of stuff all combined, if you look at the fact that the ones actually going out and fighting and trying to stop the, the far right extremists, you know, from the EDL or whatever, who have anti-Semitic factions, if you, if, who, who are explicitly anti-Semitic. If you look at the ones who are going out and fight them, they're usually the Corbynistas. If you put all of this together, I think that Jeremy Corbyn or, or a government under Jeremy Corbyn would actually make life a British Jews much safer as opposed to more dangerous. So I, I think that the, the anti-Semitism slur is I, I think 
that it's being utilized largely for smearing purposes. I think that it's not fair at all. And especially if you look at the problems in the Conservative Party, the Conservative Party as well have problems with anti-Semitism and also with with um, anti-Islamic stuff as well. I, I think it's all a bit unfair. And I don't, and, and I, as someone who has Jewish family, I do not buy into the, the idea that Corbyn is anti-Semitic or a danger to Jews in the UK. I just hear a lot of things like that with the example of Corbyn going to one of the Islamist terrorists' grave and just placing a reef on there. A lot of things like that, a lot of those stories. He's been somewhat lazy in regards to not to making sure that he's separated from troubling groups. However, you know, I don't think that that's indicative of his own views towards Jewish people at all. I think the thing that you're referring to in laying the reef for an Islamist or for, I think it was a Hamas militant, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I think that the reason he did that was more to sympathize with the oppression of the Palestinians than because he actually agreed with Hamas. I think he's more a supporter of something like Fatah or Yasser Arafat's Palestinian liberation thingy as opposed to the, the PLO, as opposed to Hamas and its blatantly anti-Semitic rhetoric. Well, I would say that those other parties and organizations don't have the best track record themselves, but... Well, the PLO, and they definitely have anti-Semitic factions. Are they institutionally anti-Semitic? Well, I would say even Hezbollah is not institutionally anti-Semitic. Obviously, when you're dealing with very strong anti-Zionist sentiment, there will be some people who take the sort of reductionist view of, well, why don't we just say all Jews are bad and it will help our cause? Which, unfortunately, is something that Hamas and, you know, most prevalent in doing, but also some other institutions themselves. But people like Yasser Arafat, I think, are not anti-Semitic. And I think that we shouldn't... Expressing support with people like Arafat or people who fought for him isn't anti-Semitic in itself. Kaylee, do you have any other topics? Disney Plus. Disney Plus is the newest streaming service that Disney put out. So basically, they've been pulling their stuff from like Netflix and other services for a while now. And everyone was like, what's happening? And then they were like, hey, we're making this new streaming service that is you can pair with Hulu to make it cheaper, but it's really not that much cheaper to pair with Hulu. Little inconvenient for the consumer, I guess, and that they now have to subscribe to yet another service for a whole other field of, you know, television and film or whatever. But, ugh. On Disney Plus, you have all the Marvel movies, except for the Spider-Man one, because they're not going to be on there. And then you get all the Disney ones. So you get really old Disney shows like Emperor's New Groove and those, which I was really excited for. And then Star Wars is all on there, and they have the new Star Wars original series. I think it's Mandalorian. I don't know. I haven't watched it, but it has Baby Yoda in it. And then there's, like, Discovery? No. I don't know. There's one other thing on there. I mean, it sounds kind of cool, but, like, at the same time, it's Disney obviously trying to, you know, occupy yet another market, which, you know, is something, a practice that I don't specifically agree with, shall we say? The thing is, Disney already owns Hulu, so they could have just put all their stuff on Hulu. 
do they? I think so. That's a bit strange, isn't it? I mean, Disney own everything now. They own bloody um, Fox News, don't they? And Vice and, you know, formerly Sky services, I think. It's, it's Disney are a massive, you know, conglomerate. A very problematic one, in my opinion. Google says Disney majority owns Hulu, so... I see. It's like a sharehold. I don't know. That's just what Google says. Will you be getting the new Disney Plus then? Or... <laughs> I got it the Wednesday it came out. Oh, wow. It's really good. I like it. When it first came out, it didn't save your spot when you were watching things, but they've added that. So by both, I'm using my sister's account, but my dad also has gotten it recently. So I might switch to his. So you're telling me that you got Disney Plus and you haven't watched Mandalorian? I haven't seen Star Wars. Oh, wait, like Star Wars in general or? I've seen all the movies in clips and pieces, but I think the only one I sat through completely was the first one of the new ones and the first of the original. Wow. I'm not a fan of Star Wars. I like, I really like Star Trek though, so. Mmm, Trekkie. Okay. But the Baby Yoda memes are great, so might watch it just for Baby Yoda. Was it Mandalorian series? I, I haven't watched it either, but apparently it took like a billion dollars, like an episode or, or something like that. I have no idea. A billion dollars an episode. I remember it was just some insane amount. That's uh, that's a waste. Sorry, I mean, I, I don't mean that in a bad way. That sounded really bad, actually. I mean, it's perhaps not the best use of a billion dollars. We'll put it that way. Okay, Google says it's 15 million per episode, so probably a billion for the season. Oh, okay. Good. Good. That's more respectable. Not quite, like, completely respectable yet, but more so. Yeah. So do you have any more to talk about Disney Plus? We can talk about how Disney Plus has a bunch of its old, more controversial stuff on there with a warning, sort of like what Warner Brothers was doing, but they still are not putting Song of the South on there. Well, I mean, Disney's wanting to protect its reputation, so... They put the original Fantasia, though. To be honest, I haven't watched the old Disney movies, so I, I don't know what that one's about. Oh, Fantasia, it's like a musical or something, but they remade it in 2000. And that's one of the popular things is to compare it, because there were some scenes in the original that would not be good today. Mm. But yeah, so they have all their old stuff back to the 20s with warnings added to them. Didn't Disney do a load of like anti-Semitic cartoons back in the 30s or whatever? I know Disney had a whole bunch of, during World War II, a bunch of stuff anti, like... Yeah. Yeah, but th none of those are on there either. I looked for those. I'm pretty sure Henry Ford had a newspaper in which he just blasted all that stuff on there, too. Henry Ford wasn't a good guy. <laughs> pretty uh yeah pretty racist but anyway yeah i think that there's a old disney cartoon i think it's about the three little pigs where the wolf dresses up in order to get into the house as like a he he dresses up in a very stereotypical you know jewish caricature kind of and, and you, there's a lot of sort of anti-semitic themes throughout i would say which you know i mean as aside from that it's quite a funny cartoon but then obviously it's very dated and quite problematic in other instances I just Googled Three Little Pigs, like on the Disney, not Googled, but like searched it up on Disney Plus, and they have one from 1933, so that might be what you're talking about. That That's probably it, yeah. That's probably it. Uh, should, we do, should, we, should we do a, a, a live reaction to it or something? I, I don't think we have time. I think we've already gone past the time limit. 
that and I think the Disney gods would strike us down with copyright. Oh, true. Very true. Let's see. What, what would be a good Christmas story, just to kind of end this off? Consumerization of Christmas is very troubling. The girl who sells candles who dies at the end. That's a good one. What? <laughs> okay. That sounds depressing. It was a poem. I had to memorize it. It's fine. What, we, could, we could discuss the socioeconomic policies of, you know, Jesus or St. Peter when he was going around, you know, forming communes and all of that cool stuff, you know? <laughs> hmm. How about like a bright and friendly a Christmas bright story? And friendly Christmas story. Let's talk about all the cool Christmas lights around. I love Christmas lights, especially the ones that like flash to the music. I love those like so much. Okay, I just remembered a great Christmas story. The the Christmas truce of World War One. Have you all heard of that? Yes. Oh yeah, the one where they played football on the no man's land. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, good stuff. So what happened is that I think it was the first or second year of the war. It was the first year. It was 14. I remember it was before the mustard gas. So uh, essentially uh, how it went was the Germans started to sing Silent Night in German. The song was originally in German. Yeah, Stille Nacht. The Entente started to, to sing back at them Silent Night. And so the next day, I think it was a German soldier went out with a white flag saying, hey, if you don't shoot, we won't shoot. And so each side slowly started coming out no man's land and they exchanged gifts and badges and hats and stuff like that. And they made an agreement to gather up each one's dead out from the no man's land and bring them off and bury them somewhere else and and then they started play a kickball and that started happening all across the the western front the generals of both sides really didn't like this because they thought oh if this continues this war might end prematurely and so they ordered the artillery to start again and and so it, it ended shortly after that Merry Christmas, everyone. And if you are Jewish, Happy Hanukkah as well, because that started yesterday, didn't it? And Happy New Year. Cool. And Happy New Year, too. And have a good day.